you're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in, and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be discussing Call to Action. And joining me to discuss this episode, we have Nathan. Hey, everybody. Barrett. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back to discuss this jam-packed episode of Rebels. And Mark. Hey, everybody. Are you looking forward to this as much as me? Because I'm excited. I will say right off the bat that this may be my favorite episode thus far of Rebels. Wow. Seconded. Seconded. I really loved this episode. What did you guys think of it? And Mark, kick us off. I don't know. For me, one of the things about it that I really enjoyed was was the way it had a Return of the Jedi feel. Uh, I don't know if I would say it was my favorite, but it was definitely one of my most enjoyed so far. And I'm going to have to agree with Mark. I don't know if it was my favorite, but it was definitely an enjoyable episode. I mean, come on. It's Tarkin. It's the Empire. It's a great show of force. I mean, it's it's got everything we 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 want in in a Rebels episode. So I'm really interested to, to hear the dynamic of what you guys thought of how this is going to impact the, the future of, of our team here. Actually, I would second what uh, Jonathan said, which is I think this is probably my favorite episode or certainly is vying for the position of my favorite episode. And part of that is that I just finished going back and summarizing over the span of two entire days the novel Tarkin for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. And I found that for whatever reason, this is one of these things that's happening with the, the Star Wars universe right now. Back in the day, if you had seen you know a character's backstory show up in a comic, you knew, oh, it might show up in another novel, but you knew it wasn't going to show up in a film. You knew that if it did show up in Clone Wars, they would have taken it, whitewashed away anything interesting about it, and just used it saying, hey, see, we know this character too, like when they took Quinlan Vos, took away all of his coolness and made him a beach bum and threw him into the show as if somehow we were supposed to be happy about that. In this case now, with the whole concept of the story group's new canon, where it's all meant to fit together, everything is supposed to be equally valid, I find that I was very excited to first meet, of course, Hera and... Kanan on the show from having read A New Dawn, being excited about seeing the characters. I mentioned last episode about it being much more excited and hyped up to see Zare come back having read Edge of the Galaxy and of all people, Tarkin, someone we've known since 1977 and I've known in that since my entire life seeing Star Wars films since I was a little kid. I gotta say the effect of seeing Tarkin on screen this time was very different for me Having read the Tarkin novel, it's at that Stover effect, as I've mentioned before, only in this case it was James Luceno doing the writing that impacted my viewing of something so much. So 
a very solid episode overall, but to have Tarkin in here with this new context we have for him was a definite thrill. I know there's some people poking fun at the episode because he's there saying, well, why do we need him there? We just had Lando, we had Yoda, and they could overdo that, certainly. But this time, because of that novel, I gotta say, I found the episode thrilling. And we talked before the show, we're gonna try to avoid major spoilers for the Tarkin novel, but some minor comments and such about the novel will pop up definitely along the way, because there are elements to this character as his new background is described that play into some of the interpretations we'll have of him here. Speaking of new context, one of the things that I think puts this in the, in the lower ring of my camp, I rise of the old masters is my favorite, but the issue I had with this one, and it's very minor was Tarkin's head. I could not get around his head. He had this Beavis and butthead kind of feel to, to his head. Uh, Steven Stanton rocked the voice, of course. I mean, you know, he's become kind of iconic for it in a lot of ways for me now after the Clone Wars. But the head, the way the cheekbones went in and the structure, his head seemed so much bigger than every other human character that I had a hard time with that. But at the same time, the little liver spots and freckles on him and Callus and stuff really stood out on this episode. See, now for me, I guess... One of the things that I loved about this episode was just the way they took it to the next level. And what I mean by that is I've previously said that I feel like in a lot of ways that the Imperials in the Rebels animated series are a credible threat. Now, bringing Tarkin in, it just elevated that dramatically. He just mm -hmm. sort of oozed menace. And you just think that when he walks in and he first he takes down Minister Tua, then he takes down Callus, then he, he gives crap to the Inquisitor. I mean, I love it when they bring up the fact that there's a Jedi, and he goes, oh, well, it's just too bad that we don't have somebody who specializes in dealing with Jedi. <laughs> I mean, just totally, I mean, like, I can't think of anybody else save Vader that could talk smack about the Inquisitor and get away with it. Yeah, and he had a great intro, too. I mean, you had the gravitas that Vader and Emperor Palpatine have arriving, you know, that that cog in the Empire. There was a lot of things that Tarkin was doing in this that really raised the bar for me. I, I, I think that's one of the things for me going forward into this new canon is I want the Empire to still be big, bad, and evil in almost all ways. You know, the one thing about Tarkin coming down when, they, when he's introduced here in Rebels is it really he's old school Tarkin. He's, he's episode four Tarkin, the way he talks to Vader, you know, release him Vader. When, when Vader's choking out that, that other officer, I mean, he is in control, very confident. We see all the stormtroopers and the tie pilots sitting there and it's, it's very original trilogy, star Wars. I mean, how could you not love this, this opening scene here? That was actually something that I was concerned about when they, they showed that Tarkin was going to be in. It was, you know, which version of Tarkin are we going to see? Is it going to be the Episode Four Tarkin, or is it going to be the Tarkin from the Clone Wars, who I guess technically was the Tarkin we saw at the end of Revenge of the Sith, but he didn't say anything. And they did a very good job, I think, of sort of bridging that. Again, I'm wondering how much of that is knowing what happened five years after Revenge of the Sith from the Tarkin novel, which is kind of how he goes from being a moth to being a grand moth, how he gets the governor title over... The, the giant area in the Outer Rim that he has while he's still overseeing the Deep Space Mobile Battle Station that they still weren't calling a Death Star. But he's certainly, 
even in the look, you know, Mark talked about how odd he looked. He does look kind of odd, Grim Fandango-ish, but I don't know. Seeing where his midpoint has been story-wise, I kind of felt like the design of the character kind of fit, you know, the step between seeing stuff back in Clone Wars versus seeing him show up later. I mean, he's he goes from being the Clone Wars him to being the Scorpius Wayne Pygram version briefly in Revenge of the Sith. And then we've got, we had before, the next time we saw him canon-wise would have been Episode 4. He's very gaunt in this case, but he still has that almost triangular type to his head, which fits with the Clone Wars. I found the design odd, but still very fitting when we saw it, if, if that makes sense. Jarring, but fitting. Well, Jonathan had mentioned how, you know, he kind of takes control, and it gave me that kind of Buffy the Watcher feel, you know, like when he came in and started chastising and stuff and having the actual firsthand knowledge of what the Jedi were like and what the old Republic was like under the Jedi and all that, you know, that, that touchstone to the past kind of like, let me put it in perspective for you. I, I really enjoyed that, especially getting into the episode proper. He states that, you know, basically he's there to deal with this issue. And we cut to Ezra, Sabine, and Kanan leading the these Imperials on a chase. And a couple episodes ago, Mark, you commented about the speeder bike that we saw in the mm-hmm. the cargo bay of the Ghost. And here we see Ezra kind of riding it. And it's interesting that you they the three of them have different bikes. Kanan has a, a unique bike. Ezra, it looks like Ezra's bike is like a converted stormtrooper bike. And then Sabine's bike is almost kind of like the ones that we saw in the Clone Wars. There are so many Clone Wars references in this episode that I loved, and we'll, we'll get to them as we go through. But I did like how they, they had each one had you know a different bike, and they all made a different sound. Did you guys pick up on that? Oh, I did. I, I dialed in on that especially. I mean, I liked how Sabine's had like a Vespa kind of feel to it. And what I thought was noticeable for me was by the end of the episode, hers is gone. But I kept wondering, where were they parking these on the ghost? I mean, it made me stop and think, were these the speeders that Kanan and Zeb were using at the beginning first episode when Ezra stole the cargo from them? I I mean, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, and I picked up on that immediately because I was wondering back when we saw Sabine on it. So, yeah, it was that was something I definitely caught. Well, it wouldn't have been Kanan's bike because his was destroyed in Spark of Rebellion or the bike he was, you know, using to steal the crates. As far as the other bikes, I mean, we have to assume that that area that we've seen them keep cargo in and keep the bike in can't be the only storage on the ghost because the it's the ghost is a freighter and that's a relatively small area. So True. I, I can I can kind of write that off. But it's kind of an interesting chase that they do through the city and they've got, I guess, Commandant Oresco and Taskmaster Grint chasing them, and that's important l- a little bit later that it's them chasing them. And they manage to outsmart the uh I guess the speeder troopers and it again, it it was it kind of set the tone, but I really don't think that this episode was as much about our Rebels characters as it was the Imperial characters. I'm not sure I'd go that far. I felt like it was it was very much about the Imperial characters as a group, the Imperial dynamic, but 
Ezra seems like he really was a standout in this one also. Again, if we're going to go with that whole idea of that mystery of what happened to his parents and the effect on him that we've seen pop up a few times in his character arc that popped up last week also. Because here he is. Last time he was in a situation where he, you know, he was running into a guy who knew of his parents and it brought up that whole pain again. And here he's trying to carry out a mission by the end of the episode that is very similar to what his parents did. They got disappeared for it, so to speak. And now he's afraid of losing this team, too. It was very much, it seemed like, sort of an Ezra-centric episode when it came to the emotional development. But for everything else, you know, the organizational development, the, the action developments, that tended to lean towards the, the Imperial side. I wouldn't leave Ezra out, though. Oh, no, I definitely wouldn't leave Ezra out. But, I mean, I guess for me... I think maybe what I mean by that is that I was drawn in by the imperial aspect of the story. Because as we find out, Tarkin is there to really up the game. And there's that wonderful scene where Tarkin is at, you know, at his at a desk, I'm assuming it's his office, and Grint and Oresco are called in to meet with him. And he basically asked them to explain why they aren't able to deal with these small group of rebels. And then he has them executed. He has the Inquisitor decapitate them. And I mean, I was shocked. I was pleased because I felt that it, it just fit. But I was like, really? I was like, holy cow, they killed them. I mean... We know that they don't have too many character models, but they just they just destroyed two of them. I was absolutely shocked to see them die. On second viewing, I found it also kind of surprising that if you look at the reactions, unless the Inquisitor is just reading Tarkin's intentions, the Inquisitor and Tarkin have discussed this apparently beforehand because the Inquisitor knows at a certain point in the conversation, go behind them and kill them. But Maketh Tua looks shocked, and Callus looks like he's surprised by it. So they've both essentially been left out of the loop on this whole thing. Like their pay grade isn't high enough to know this. But definitely Tarkin is there to find new ways to motivate them, so to speak. And that works. It's like uh, you guys were saying earlier, it's upping the ante. If the Empire was already a dangerous, real threat to give some real suspense added to the fact that we have characters here that we haven't in many cases seen before, except for film characters being dropped in, so who knows who survives, who dies, or whatever. Now bringing Tarkin in cranks that up. I'm not sure I'd want to see him all the time, aside from just the questions it would raise of, okay, well, if he's there, what about the rest of the Outer Rim? What about the Death Star Project, Sentinel Base, Rampart Station, Desolation Station? Why isn't he there? But to have him pop in from time to time to be the one to shake things up and not have it have to be Vader... I think that's a really welcome thing, but it certainly put some unexpected spins on this episode. I never would have expected Oresco and Grint to be created essentially for the purpose of dying mid-season. I figured they were going to be our bumbling Imperials, our mustache-twirling villains of the Imperials for the entire series to balance out the darker menace of Callus and the Inquisitor. Apparently not. You know, what was really shocking about this scene where they get decapitated is who was the decapitation for? It wasn't in front of the stormtroopers and time fighters that we saw in the beginning of the episode. This is for Callus and Makathua. I mean, they were the only audience in that room. Who, who, what point is Tarkin trying to bring home but to them that they're next? And I thought that was pretty awesome. 
I totally was mocking the Inquisitor at first. I'm like, what is this guy doing standing around? You know, how come the Empire isn't treating Kanan a Jedi, you know, helping a rebellion cell? Tarkin even mentions other cells and stuff. And then it dawned on me that Tarkin is the answer. They've sent Tarkin at this point. And and it kind of makes sense from some of the angles that Legends has played with Vader, where Palpatine's like, you know, get off the Jedi. I'm going to send other things and other people to go and handle them. So going that route was kind of interesting. I found, though, that his total disregard of the Jedi was something interesting that played into the character as well. But he was like, he was less concerned about the Jedi, but more concerned with what the Jedi stood for and the hope that came with that. And I thought that was an interesting little twist of the character in and of itself. I was like, oh, okay. So that's where he's going from. But the fact that, that there was that whole pre-spoken thing between him and the Inquisitor. I didn't even think about that at first. And the fact that they were decapitated, I missed that they were decapitated. I just thought he stabbed them both with the lightsaber. I just thought he plunged it forward and cut them both in half. I, I didn't know exactly how they did it because they did it off screen. And I thought that was pretty slick. I mean, I really liked The Walking Dead. And there have been some scenes where characters have been killed that have been considered pretty brutal by the fans. And sometimes it's, it's tastefully done where they don't show it but you still get that same thing. And they nailed that in that regard. It was kind of a weird choice to choose those two, you know, the inquisitor callous, they've all failed just as much as, as anybody else. Uh, so for them to get picked out too. So it was, a, it was a weird thing all the way around. Well, Mark, to what you said about, you didn't realize they got decapitated. I was able to kind of slow this down and watch it. And there's a moment where you hear the saber and you see the Inquisitor start to step forward. And if you look and you watch Grint's eyes, they bulge. Like he mm. just feels. I mean, in that, it's literally a split second. It's even less than a blink and you miss it, but it's there. And it's just those little details that, I mean, it just gave me chills. Well, see, them killing the models, there are a few little things throughout this episode that give me the sense that we're eventually going to step away from Lothal. I mean, they, they talk about getting messages out to a few systems. You know, you're killing these models. Well, it makes sense then to move on to different models and stuff. And you've got everything from Lothal that you can use on a new planet. I mean, I, I don't know. I get the hint that the rebel group might not be here for long. And the other thing that Barrett, you said was that this was almost like an object lesson for Tua and Callus, and that kind of comes comes true because later there's a discussion between Tarkin and Callus, and as Callus is leaving the room, he's kind of like looking over his shoulder, like he's like he's freaked out, like he's afraid that Tarkin's going to be like, you know what, Inquisitor, do away with him. Mm -hmm. It's funny because you've got basically Tarkin here making a Vader move, right? I mean, aside from blowing up Alderaan as a lesson to Leia, we don't really see Tarkin, at least, it's interesting, you don't see Tarkin in film or in the Clone Wars really being someone promoting this idea of, you know, I'm going to do this violent thing as a lesson to these others. Although we will, of course, find in the Legends continuity and to a degree in the new canon with the Tarkin novel and such that part of the Tarkin doctrine was this idea of rule by force and fear of force, that fear... We'll keep the local systems in line, so to speak, as he says in the film. And here he's basically pulling a Vader. It's just like Vader force choking Ozla. It's just like, you know, apology accepted, Captain Nita. And it's one of those things. It was an interesting thing as I was reading the Tarkin novel. There's some references to the fact that because of what happened with Ahsoka, because of Tarkin being the prosecutor, this 
linkage and alliance between Vader and Tarkin that the Emperor, as Palpatine or Sidious at the time, was trying to create never materialized because of what happened with Ahsoka. And yet here we are again seeing, like we saw back in the Clone Wars, that they are very much of similar minds. Tarkin is just as willing to make these very lethal examples in front of others to get rid of less productive subordinates in favor of motivating the ones that are more likely to be productive. I found the Vader parallel interesting, especially given that there's that tension between them that pervades the Tarkin novel to a degree and that we seem to a lot of times forget was present in A New Hope. Also in this episode, I mean, as Rebels is wont to do, they reference last week's episode with Senator Travis because they're watching the Net where Travis is kind of reformed and now he's openly supportive of the Imperial New Order and he renounces the Rebels' cell on Lothal as being too extreme and misinterpreting his message. And, you know, the, the crew is just really upset and almost like despondent over this. They, they, you know, obviously it's a continuation. They feel betrayed and they come up with the idea that they need to do their own propaganda, which again, it's very much what a rebel cell would do. It's, it's try to promote their cause and you know get the get the populace on their side so they've developed this plan that they're going to broadcast their message using an imperial communications tower not only to Lothal but to the surrounding systems i really like this plan again i i just felt it was more than just okay we're going to steal stuff from the imperials or we're going to blow this up or we're going to you know get information they they're really waging a you know a guerrilla war against the empire what did you guys think of kanan's plan it's the typical like counterinsurgency thing right the type of thing that we see in real history you know if you can control the message control the media you can get your words out and eventually you, know, you will eventually break that you know the uh, the back of the whatever the oppressor is right it's the same thing as you know the use of civil disobedience and peaceful protest versus you know, bringing in dogs and fire hosts and stuff like that. If you can show the truth, it helps people see the context of what's going on with the oppressors as well. Uh, I love that. As soon as they mention it, though, two things popped to mind. One was the cool one, right? Holy crap, they're coming up with a plan that's very much like Ezra's parents. How awesome and fitting is that in a saga that is so much based on family generations and such? The other thing that popped to mind was, wasn't Ezra, you know, living in Lothalnet Communication Tower E272 that had previously been decommissioned, or at least abandoned, my immediate thought was, oh, they can use Ezra's old place. But they don't even mention it. I think given that we saw him in a place like that, it probably should have had maybe a throwaway line or something saying that they can't use it because it's, it's out of the network. They wind up going for the one that's the central one, but they make it sound initially that there are just various communications towers they could hit whichever one they want, which made it sound as though his should have been an option. But I love the generational aspect of such a familiar thing for the Bridger family and also something that resonates with real history. Well, they actually referenced the fact that this one was the only one that was able to connect them back to like the, the main capital. Because I, I thought that was one of the interesting things, that by the end of the episode, Tarkin was willing to sacrifice that link to end their message. I mean, I, I, I like how, for me... 
this whole show is has brought up feelings of Firefly and the whole you can't stop the signal, you know, that that whole avenue of when Mal was trying to get the signal out. That's what Kanan's plan was in a sense. And that's where you get that feeling like, okay, this, this is moving beyond Lethal at this point. But isn't that and that was another thing that I guess we're going to kind of do the coda here relating to the tower. That was one thing that did kind of make me shake my head a little bit near the end. It's great and symbolic and and kind of a cool moment to hear the broadcast. And right as the broadcast reaches that crescendo, boom, they're blowing up the tower and destroying it so the message can't get out. But if they're willing to do that the next morning, why weren't they willing to do that the night before when they could have killed all the rebels while they were there at the tower? Just pull the troops back and blow up the thing. You've got Kanan captive. Everybody else is dead. You've just taken out the rebel cell. It's one of those things that you have to sit back and kind of go, oh, well, I mean, it serves the story to do it the way that they did, but there are at least a couple of logical issues that the first viewing I didn't catch because I was so just hyped up about it and excited about it and just enjoying the, the ride of the whole thing. There are some things that keep it from being a perfect episode there, though, logically, as we go along. Well, Nathan, I can explain why they didn't blow it up. I mean, again, to lose that tower is to lose an asset, and the Empire doesn't want to do that. That's number one. Number two, they had three of those police gunships. And again, I loved seeing those. Again, we saw those in the Clone Wars, and it was really nice to see them back. And I think of the three or four that had come with the Inquisitor that I think all but one had been destroyed. And lastly, when they were fighting the the Rebels at the tower, Tarkin wasn't there. And when Tarkin hears that they're broadcasting, he makes the call to destroy it. And he, he, he makes the comment that, you know, you don't know what it takes to win a war, and I do. I don't think that this is something that the that Callus or the Inquisitor would have thought to do. I think this is something that only Tarkin would have had the... I mean, if, if you'll excuse the vulgarity, the, the balls to do. Even in that sense, though, I mean, it's it makes sense with the character. He is definitely a, you know, we will do what it takes. It's another thing they built up within. Uh, for those who haven't read the Tarkin book, you really should. They tell about his background of uh, as a child on, on uh, Iriadu, going through the carry-on spike trial and all this vicious training out in the wilds that he had to do and eventually going through his career and how that helped shape the man that he became as he goes through these different stages of, of the Outland Security Force, et cetera, et cetera, to get to where he eventually is. That being said, though, yes, his scorched earth policy makes a point, and it certainly makes a point to Kanan, it seems like, because it certainly seems like it's for Kanan as the audience there. You know, you don't know what it takes to win a war, and he just kind of stoically looks as the thing blows up. On the other hand, what is it that Sabine says when they talk about putting in the spike? As long as the tower's still transmitting, we'll be able to put out our message. So flip the switch and turn the tower off. You want to talk about not losing an asset? Why don't you just stop it from transmitting instead of blowing the thing up? And that's where there's that, you know, it's great for spectacle and it's great for the Tarkin character. I'm not sure the logic totally flows. Well, except that this is not only to you know, prevent them from getting their message out. This also makes a statement. This is not only showing Canaan's, but it's showing everybody who would uh, oppose the Empire that the gloves are off and they'll do whatever they feel is necessary to stay in power and in control and not to give an 
inch to those who oppose them. The yeah. empire is tyrannous. They want to oppress you. We're going to prove that we're not trying to oppress you by blowing stuff up. Well, they totally, I mean, they, they clipped them off. They're completely cut away from everything. I, I think the only people that now have connection back are the people in the Star Destroyers, which Tarkin now controls. I mean, they're completely cut off. So it works in that regard, too. It's like this rebellion thing. I'm nipping it in the bud. If they make a, an issue of that in the future, I totally recant the lack of, of some measure of logic to this because that does, you know, that does present a, a change of pace for the background here where basically the Empire could do whatever the heck it wants to whoever the heck it wants, even that Meketh Tua clone in the crowd who was listening to the message. Before they get to the tower, I mean, the Rebels concoct a plan to break in and to, you know, take over and... and there's this point where Kanan, Ezra, and Sabine are scouting it out. And again, we talked about it the last episode that the banter between everybody just it feels so natural and they and the writers seem to really get the characters. I think we get more of that here because where there's a line where Ezra and Kanan are talking and Kanan kind of praises Ezra for for using the loth cat to take out a probe droid and she's like, you know, as touching it as it, as it is when you two are bonding. And I just like that that sort of snarky attitude. It it just worked for me. And Mark, you you had to have loved that. I did. I was just like, oh, there's a little bromance going here. And I think this, as, as the whole shipper of Sabine and Ezra, I think this is the angle where she's going to start to appreciate Ezra more because she's seeing Kanan appreciate him more. And she respects Kanan. I, I definitely got the feeling that she is a superior fighter of the group i mean aside from zeb who seems to be more hand-to-hand physical she's definitely the sniper of the group the sharp eye the shooter and so having that angle of having her respect and stuff i love the way that the banter played off and the and the bromance there (laughs) sabine is also the one that brings the giant red canister and nathan i can't look at a red canister without thinking about you playing some sort of first person shooter game now (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I immediately thought, oh, the red canister, something's going to go boom. Although I did kind of wonder, why is it that she's the one bringing it in? Why isn't somebody who could maybe use the force to, you know, dodge the incoming blaster bolts? Why not make them the one that's carrying around, you know, the extremely explosive barrel? But, oh, but dude, you saw what she did with that little tiny go-kart? I mean, that was some impressive flying skills. I was like, she's making that thing dance. And she's the one who likes things that go boom. Since we're about to talk about we're, – we're kind of in the scene talking about the actual raid. One thing I wanted to, to get into, because I've mentioned it, but it wasn't something we've really had a chance to discuss as the group, is that angle of right before the mission when Ezra's kind of you know almost pouty and needs to have that separate moment to talk with Kanan as they step out. You know, Even Hera's like, what's going on? You know, She makes that, that double take to the door. She looks up to the door like, what? And then immediately does it again right when they change the camera angle. Which is odd because it's, you know, animation, not live filming. But I like the conversation that they had. You've got the element of Ezra being willing to admit his fears, not wanting to lose this group, going back to what he said uh, to some degree when it came to uh, the episode, right, where he was inside the Jedi Temple there on Lothal, Path of the Jedi and such. And it's interesting because we've seen Ezra jumping into things more and more and being more willing to be a rebel and be a part of the group. But now, because there's that personal connection to the tragedy of his parents that's so similar to what he's about to do, he's stepping back. And we get that moment between them where you know, even Kanan's saying, you know, we need to be willing to sacrifice. And I didn't really know what that meant 
because my master tried to teach it to me, and I, I don't think I got it until I started teaching you. We're both learning this together. I think that was a very important scene, but this episode had so much stuff in it, it's very easy for that to get kind of glossed over. Were you guys with me on that? Is that being an important scene for them, or is that just kind of more of the same for them, and I'm just seeing more into it than I probably should? No, I think you have you know, sort of a valid point of, because we've talked about this back, looking back to gathering forces, I think that I said that Ezra is really driven by fear. And we made the whole point that, you know, given his background, there's certainly aspects of what we would refer to as post-traumatic stress. And here, possibly even guided by the force, premonition, he, he demonstrates that he's afraid of losing his, and he calls it out, his new family. And he has bonded very close to Kanan. I mean, Kanan is sort of this combination teacher, big brother, father figure. And, you know, Ezra is scared to lose him. And we see how torn up later in the episode when Kanan is captured that Ezra becomes. I mean, even to the point where they're all in the Phantom and he realizes that Hera is going to leave without Kanan, he turns around and if she hadn't closed the door, I think he would have jumped off. I, that whole scene with Ezra and, and Hera turning the ship, I couldn't help but see the, the similarities to the New Jedi Order when Chewie died and Anakin Solo turned the ship and jetted off. I mean, I I was wrenched at that moment. And I think for me, the musical cues were what did it. I mean, when the Inquisitor shows up, heck, the, the beginning and how I had the whole Return of the Jedi feel to it. But when the Inquisitor shows up, the, the dramatic change of the tone, when Kanan makes his sacrifice and the, and the choice words he has all the way up to that point, I mean, I knew when he said, you know, I'm going to get the next one. I'm going to be right behind you. I'm like, he ain't coming. He's totally, he's taking one for the team here. And I, I don't know. I mean, the music just had me totally raptured by it all. You know, when the Inquisitor was coming down, you know, he's beat Kanan every single time. So I was wondering if we were going to see a fight where actually Kanan was going to actually come out the victor with a fight in the Inquisitor. And... You know, I thought they kind of ended it pretty well the way they did, uh, the way they captured him and, and and everything, because you can't have Kanan, you can't have the Inquisitor show up and beat him every time, but at the same time, you can't have Kanan find a way to beat the Inquisitor um, and make the Inquisitor look weak. So uh, the way that they're they're actually coming up with these stories with Kanan doing the sacrifice, sacrificing for the team after he was telling you know, Ezra about that. Uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And I think this is kind of the first time we get a part one of an episode, right? Well, we did have the two-parter between, I mean, not including Spark of Rebellion, but we did have the two-parter with uh, Empire Day and Gathering Forces. Right, 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 right. But, Barrett, you're talking about the conflict between the Inquisitor and Kanan. And one thing that I really liked is initially it's not the Inquisitor. Initially it's Callus basically confronting Kanan, and Kanan goes, "Oh well, this is familiar." Or no, it was Callus who said, "This is familiar." And Kanan goes, "Yeah, well, same situation, same outcome. You're going to lose." And Callus goes, "I don't think so." And then the Inquisitor jumps down off the gunship. And Kanan takes a look at him, and it was just, I really, really loved the scene because he reverses his saber and stabs it 
into the locking for the door, thereby slowing the Inquisitor down from following you know, the rest of the team and essentially cutting himself up. That was the point where he goes, where he knew, I'm going to have to sacrifice myself for the group. And I just thought that that was powerful. And you said, Mark, that you was kind of gut-wrenching when Hera was forced to leave without him. That was the moment that was gut-wrenching for me because you you saw the almost the acceptance of Kanan at that point. He was prepared to die so that the rest of the group could get away. I had that feel all the way through this episode that the group had finally become a well-oiled team. Like the, the first season had led to this moment. You know, the one thing that I questioned, though, was why did Hera come in the Phantom and not the Ghost? I mean, Sith has hit the fan. I would think he'd want to come in guns blazing with the big ship, not the little pony. And that was that was just the odd part. But I loved when they were all getting on and she had flown it backwards and had the, the landing ramp open and it was hovering there. And you had that anti-aircraft fire flying around it and stuff. You're like, oh, man. I mean, it was getting so close. And Ezra, that was that moment, too, where Ezra, you were like, is he going to jump down? Is he going to go in? Because he said he was going to. And at the end, he did follow his heart. I mean, there were so many moments that were just building up in this that really had me. But one thing I was thinking about during the fight between the Inquisitor and Kanan, well, two things. One, I really want to know the Inquisitor's name. But the other one was, aside from Kanan, we're never really going to see a lot of lightsaber fights with the inquisitor be kind of cool if they did some kind of backstory or something like that where we see some old videos or something like that where we see him hunting down jedi or him and vader hunting down people be kind of interesting to see that angle played up in some regard you mentioned why she came in the phantom i don't know why they chose that rather than the ghost per se but she does mention in the original plan that it's the phantom so i wonder if it's just sort of a they didn't realize the sith was going to hit the fan so she was stuck with the little one that she was always using or already using uh, well, that's true, because they do mention the plans going awry all the time, and that was one thing that Ezra was was really bummed on in the aspect of his family and that whole echoing back, the generational thing that you were talking about. He's like, don't our plans never kind of go the right way? Barrett, you mentioned how you, know, you really can't have him show up, the Inquisitor show up, and this constantly Kanan is losing to him. you got to kind of change it up. Somehow it's got to be something that's going to keep the interest and all. And I did find it interesting that they gave Kanan some better skills, but they did call it out because you see them fighting like, oh, here we go again. It's going to be another instance. You know, if they don't play it some different way, it's going to be another instance of the Inquisitor just kind of toys with them and Kanan winds up defeated again like we've seen before. And instead, Kanan gets a good kick in that sends the Inquisitor zipping on back. And that kind of shocked me. I'm like, oh, has he gotten better all of a sudden? And I was like, oh. I'm sure that'll come up as, well, that's something that they haven't explained. How did he get better? Why can you stand up to the Inquisitor now? And no, they flat out give it to us right there, right? You've been practicing. Now, how practicing with Ezra on lightsaber combat makes him better against an Inquisitor? That's eh, anybody's guess. But it's cool that they at least called that out. You know, it's one of those instances where, like we talked about last episode, they're not necessarily spoon-feeding us every bit and piece to make it all make sense. They're giving us some credit as an audience they also seem like, in some cases, they're sort of anticipating the type of things the audience might ask, and they are making sure to hit that as they go. Uh, one thing I would say about this ending, though, it gut-wrenching, absolutely. It almost, not quite, but it almost had that same feel as the last episode of Quantum Leap to me, that, ooh, but we know that in this case, surely Kanan's going to somehow get out of this one way or the other. It's just going to be next episode. But I found it interesting that, one, the episode ends with what is definitely a cliffhanger, but what is not a to-be-continued, remember, Empire Day and Gathering Forces had a to-be-continued. 
So here we are with what is essentially a serialized or an arc of episodes that weren't treated as if they were necessarily a two-parter in terms of the way that the episodes themselves were constructed. Because of that, and because we'd never heard anything about this necessarily being a two-parter, I was kind of shocked at the way that it, that it ended. About probably five minutes before the ending, I'm starting to think, oh, crap. This isn't going to go – this isn't going to end in the next five minutes. This isn't a one-episode mm-hmm. story because we're so used to the idea of these compact stories that have connections to the bigger arc, but they themselves are somewhat self-contained – that as we get to a point where, oh, Callus is there, and the Inquisitor just shows up, and he's talking about taking Katie to talk to Tarkin, and the group is separated, and now the elevator's shut down. Oh, crap. That is like a sinking feeling as we got to it. Exciting, but it's a sinking feeling for the characters of, oh, God, they're going to have to have a whole other episode to get themselves out of this. And that, to me, was a completely unexpected thing, which was thrilling. Well, speaking of those two, you had Field Gear Tarkin followed by that sensation of, you know, you're never going to see that toy. But when Kanan tells Hera to go, that, again, I I kept getting brought back to New Jedi Order. Like, I mean, I got to go back and reread these books or something, because I was thinking of when Anakin was telling Jason and Jaina to leave him behind. I mean, that desperation there in his voice. I mean, you know, Jonathan, you were dead on when when you said when he stabbed through there, that emotional impact. I mean, it was hitting on all cylinders during this moment. I remember thinking, you know, the first time I watched this, the end of the episode, doesn't it feel like a season cliffhanger? Doesn't it feel like this is the way you end a season? Mm-hmm. And I had to go back and go, no, I know we've got some more coming. But eventually, I mean, at first I was like, wow, are they going to go on like a hiatus for a while and leave us hanging? Because this is, this is one of those episodes where I, I cannot wait for next week to see, see how it resolves. And I'm wondering, I mean, you guys are saying, oh, well, maybe it'll take, you know, it's going to take a whole nother episode to to resolve this. I don't necessarily think that it should. I, I'm wondering if this should be stretched out for a little while, if the group is going to have to learn how to deal with, you know, go on without Kanan for a bit. See, I had a similar thought, but in a twisted way. I, I was thinking, you know, what if we see the Inquisitor, uh, you know, do some whack stuff or, or they bring him to the Emperor and the Emperor does some spell and we see Kanan get twisted by the dark side in some fashion and he becomes, you know, some antagonistic aspect that they've got to try to rescue him. Like, I, I don't know. I just go off in wild spots. I blame legends. <laughs> well, you would wonder what they would they would decide to do with him because they can't really make a public spectacle out of him. If they try to hold on to him through the rest of the season, you wonder why they're keeping him alive, right? I mean, they may be torturing him for information but it, and trying to maybe twist him to the dark side or something, but it would seem like after a while they would just kill him to eliminate the threat, especially given what Tarkin said earlier that I thought was pretty cool. When he's having the conversation with Grint and Oresco and the others who are all in there in the room, talking about how, you know, uh, I knew the Jedi the Jedi weren't like this, you know, he doesn't live up to the standards, you know, I highly doubt it, etc. He's giving that sort of propaganda-ish line of, the Jedi are all gone. They're done. They're history. Don't worry about it. They're ancient times type stuff, even though it was very recent. Now, even Macbeth Tua wasn't even quite sure what to make of the idea of a Jedi at this point. Very much like Tarkin mentioning the term Jedi. I believe he says something like, isn't this where the Jedi held court or something? Yeah, You're talking to Massa Media in the, the Jedi Tarkin where he basically, Masamita even tells Tarkin, we don't speak of the Jedi governor. At what point does that come into play? Because it's going to have to have some dictation on how they deal with the captured Jedi. They can't make a spectacle of this, or it's them saying, 
look, the Jedi were actually real. Granted, we've only had about 15 years to convince you that they weren't, but the Jedi are still alive and well. I'm not sure if bringing them out to execute them would do any good. It seems like it would do more harm than good to the Empire to even admit such a thing. So where would they put the guy if they're going to stretch this out beyond an episode? See, I think we're going to see the Inquisitor attempt or succeed in breaking Kanan. I think that's what they're going to do. I mean, you're right. They can't basically try to turn the Jedi into sort of like fiction and, 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 and you know, base and almost try to, to quash the legend of it and then parade one out for a, for a show trial. No, they, they're going to have to keep him silent, keep him away. I mean, you know, if they hold on to him long enough, this could be the perfect time to bring in i mean if we're going to bring in movie characters i mean wouldn't it be wouldn't it be amazing if tarkin presented kanan to vader or they go to lando who turns to han solo i mean there there's a few different angles you could play here i i loved the way it, it came to that conclusion and i think one of the things too i really noticed the beginning and the ending with the logo of the rebels and the way they did it and i really enjoyed the choice that they picked for this episode i mean the, even the end it ends with all the crew kind of you know standing around and you're just like oh crud you know and then it goes right to the the logo and the and the way the music kind of like died out it was creepy i mean it definitely had that that empire strikes back take your breath away like what the really ending it like this moment but there is that spark of hope in there there is Ezra's impassioned speech to the citizens of Lothal and probably other systems in the area about how he remembers things being better before and, you know, how the Empire accuses them of uh, being criminals and they're not. They're fighting for the people. And you, you, see the, you see the populace listening. Do you think that we're going to see a full-fledged rebellion on Lothal? That's a good question, because if they do, does that bring the full fury of the Empire down? And again, does that make their days numbered? I mean, it really brings a head to their rebellion. I mean, they're definitely under the microscope at this point. <laughs> they definitely are. And if you're getting the attention of Tarkin already, uh, Lothal is definitely, they got big plans for Lothal. They got to watch over it. Whether or not there's an actual uprising, I think, is kind of in question, because there's the safe way they could play this, right, which is very slow, very gradually, they gain some popular support. Maybe there's an uprising later, maybe not, but it's far enough along in the series that we could see a success on Lothal and not expect it to have to fall back into Imperial hands or something. I almost feel like if they did one now, some type of rising up, it would have to be sort of a quick one or two episode thing and then it's gone. Maybe just the, the group they're with gets bigger and there's more allies there. A full-fledged uprising would almost have to be crushed by the Empire at this point. And I'm not sure they've got, outside of doing this maybe a two or three episode arc, I'm not sure they've got the nerve yet to do what they really could do with something like that. I mean, there are TV shows that have done game-changing moments where all of a sudden it's like the series from that point onward is so different it could almost be two different series. The tone has changed because of one climactic event. Give us – if they're going to give us an uprising on Lothal, don't give us something that's a throwaway few episode thing and it's gone. Don't make it something that takes so long that by the time it actually happens, we figure whatever. We've seen the Empire get beaten on Lothal so many times it doesn't matter. Give us a game changer. Give us something huge. Have the Empire come in and absolutely crush it. 
and make that be the moment that our heroes leave Lothal and have to spread the rebellion beyond it because Lothal is now a wasteland. Give us that kind of game changer that ups the stakes to the nth degree even beyond the Empire being a credible threat, the Inquisitor, and now Tarkin. But I'm not sure they've got the guts to do something like that. Very few shows are willing to mess with their formula to that big a degree. This episode, we also get confirmation that of something that we've been talking about. When Tarkin initially arrives, he talks about how important Lothal is to the overall plan for the Outer Rim. Now, we've been talking about why does the Empire care about Lothal? You know, why did, back in Idiot's Array, they make such a big thing and they don't want Lando and other private landowners mining? What What is it about Lothal that makes it important? And when are we going to find out? I'm, I'm predicting it's kyber crystals. It's got to have something to do with the mining because that even comes up in Edge of the Galaxy, the Zare Leonis Series. That's the whole reason why a lot of things are happening with his friends and their family's land, because of the mining. It's a big part of why his family comes to Lothal in the first place. The agricultural side of things, the scientific side, tying into the mining and how that's going to affect the environment and so forth. There is something about these mines that they're dropping hints at, both here and elsewhere, that's got to be the big issue. But I don't know that any of the sources have ever really given much detail as to what exactly is being mind that you can't find somewhere else it's unattainium again this is another example of how this show it's making us work for it It, it's 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 sort of tickling us with little bits of information that we're going to sit down and we're going to wonder and then they'll give us a little bit more and give us a little bit more but nothing nothing is wasted this is Their way of telling a story and their way of building all of this together, I mean, Nathan, you called it sort of serialized, and I could totally see that. This, it's just so concise and compact and tight that it's one of the reasons I really love this episode. Nothing is wasted unless they bring in a puffer pig or an episode like Fight or Flight. One thing that stands out to me, you talk about how this is sort of setting the stage for other things, and they're using the scenes to link things together. I think about how droids in distress gave us bail. We've now seen multiple mentions of Fulcrum and almost had an ally in Gaul Travis previously. In that same scene that we've talked about with the death of the two Imperials and the talk of the Jedi being gone and all, I gotta say, one thing that stands out to me in that conversation is the thing about the rebels. Because he's talking about there's, you know, call them dissidents, pirates, blah, 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 tribes, whatever. The one thing they're missing to succeed is unity which has been something we've talked about before, and they've talked about this being a series that's supposed to show us the beginnings of the Rebel Alliance, the, the canonical version, as opposed to the unifying with the Corellian Treaty and Starkiller and all that stuff that we saw in the RPG and eventually the Han Solo stuff and, and the Force Unleashed and all. And I like that they're laying the groundwork of it here, and they give us a sense that this is not a well-known thing. Locally, yeah, people know about what's going on with this crew on Lothal, so they kind of recognize who it must be who's speaking when the transmission goes out. But even Grint is like, wait, cells? You're saying there are other rebel cells out there? It doesn't seem to be common knowledge that resistance exists beyond one's own local sphere, which I thought was mm-hmm. a nice touch for that whole idea of building unity, because it really isn't there right now, and they're emphasizing it in both the eyes of the rebels and the Imperials. And the fact that this cell especially was more pacifistic than the others. 
Isis, apparently, is one of the other ones. Mm. Free our prisoners or we behead the Rodian. At which point we all say, okay, go ahead. Greedo, we killed Greedo. Yeah, don't worry, there's the more of them. The Rodian! You know, Jonathan, you had mentioned the gunships earlier. Uh, we have seen these gunships before, haven't we? Yeah, we did. They were originally designed for the Star Wars 1313 video game that never ended up getting finished. And they were used in the last episodes, you know, the Ahsoka Jedi on the Run arc for Clone Wars Season 5. It was really nice to see them here. I think it's it's an, a very kind of cool design, kind of a hybrid of the Republic gunships with aspects of TIE fighters on them. They kind of remind me of like a TIE fighter helicopter type of vehicle, uh, which is really cool. So they need to go ahead and start making these toys because I would snatch up a couple of those in a second. Well, they did make that out of Lego. You, there was a Lego set. I believe it was an exclusive to Toys R Us, but they did have that as a Lego set. Man, uh, Legos ruling the world. I need a three and three quarter action version, though. Oh, I'd be all over that as long as it was done, you know, kind of appropriately scaled. But I mean, you know, depending. I know, Barrett, you, you like myself, are uh, you know, a big toy collector. And you know, even though we're getting a little bit off topic, there's been a lot of problems with getting uh, you know, Rebels uh, toys to market. I've seen very mm-hmm. few figures and ships. And you know, today, actually, for the first time, I saw the new Ezra lightsaber blaster. And I was very tempted just because it looks so interesting. And I hadn't seen anything new in the stores for a while. Yeah. Mine's a graveyard and I have been looking for chopper everywhere. I'm hearing he's impossible to find. (laughs) Oh, it's terrible. I'd never seen chopper, never saw chopper out in the wild. And the figures that we do have, we're missing hair and Sabine anyway. So (laughs) give us some more toys, man. Well, Hera and Sabine are supposed to be coming in the next uh, the next wave of the uh, the Mission Series two packs, which mm-hmm. I have heard reports of hitting some targets, but I haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm really hoping that they can support this show because, I mean, I know so many kids that love this show that I think has was really missing out not putting stuff in market so that the kids can buy it up because we all know what a short attention span for these sort of things kids have. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like the rebels because of episode seven, the force awakens that's actually coming out this year. You could, you can understand why they're focusing their, their manufacturing of their toys and their, the way they're going to sell this, this movie. And it's almost like rebels is getting pushed to the back corner you know it's almost like it's mm-hmm. it's a filler until the the new movie comes out and then we're gonna have the standalone movies so it, at least we have rebels for season two but in the meantime give us some toys it's for the kids give us some toys you would think they'd hit the throttle on this especially with that window that you referred to i mean I'm a little upset about the whole five points of articulation, but someone pointed out, you know, hey, well, for the younger kids, that's great. So, yeah, for Jaina, my little, you know, three year old, I would get her those toys all day, but I don't know. I mean, I just want Chopper and I, and maybe Sabine because that looks really good, but I don't know. I have a hard time 
even seeing any of the toys when I travel 37 miles to the Walmart or not Walmart, but the target that's across the way. And I get there and it's just ransacked over. And the Walmart that I have locally, it's the same stuff that's been there for over a year. I mean, when that stuff came out first run, it hit that Walmart. It was that command game center stuff. And that was about it. There's the big tall figures. And then the big X-Wing that's ungodly that my son got one for Christmas. And he gave it to me (laughs) practically because he's like, I can't play with this. This is huge. I'm like, what do you want me to do with it? He's like, put it on your ceiling. And I'm like, oh, my God, dude, that thing's mammoth. I don't want it falling on me. (laughs) So wait, wait, wait. You guys are saying that if I were to go to a store and look for Star Wars toys, I shouldn't be seeing nothing but Angry Birds Star Wars still like I am at every store I go to around here? You should be able to get the Angry Birds pretty cheap because they stopped producing those over a year ago, I think. They're Mm -hmm. still sitting on the shelves at the two places I go to the most. They're just kind of chilling, and they haven't restocked really since except one or two items. I haven't seen a single Rebels anything although to be honest i go to the bookstores and don't see the rebels young reader books which kind of strikes me as odd i mean there's just nothing around here and it doesn't help that the one new venue of rebel stories we're getting outside of the show is uh comics but as i recall the magazine that's got those comics in it right now is exclusive to was it germany or something like that it's going to take a while they might reprint them here but there's no official word yet if i remember right and so even for those who are not following the toys and they're just trying to find other stuff relating to the show. It's more of the, the novels. I was like a new dawn, you know, does it relate to rebels? Absolutely. Is it marketed as it? No. Same thing with Tarkin. Now it relates because Tarkin's in it. Is it marketed as such? No, there, there really is just like a black hole of, of marketing. Nothing. It's a real missed opportunity. And this is something that we talk about over at star Wars action news that it really should have that support. It should have that presence. When you think back to the release of The Clone Wars in 2008, man, there was so much stuff that you could get. And I remember, you know, when I took my boys to see it, I was able to go to the store and get them the entire first wave of Clone Wars figures, which I think was between eight and 12 figures. And the first wave of ships. I mean, there were things available. They were really supporting it. But now I'm really not sure where the uh, the, the toy industry is going as far as Star Wars now. I mean, there's been some speculation. You know, Barrett, you had mentioned the, uh, the Force Awakens as if they are even going to have three and three quarter inch figures for the Force Awakens because and the three and three quarter inch, as we all know, has really been the backbone of Star Wars collectibles since 1978, back when they released the early bird set. So while these are, are struggling and what they, they do have coming out are priced so high and out of proportion of what they've been, and people are kind of going crazy over that, and yet you can go to the Disney store and find a little miniature Darth Vader whack-a-mole. So I'm hoping Disney really figures it out and, and comes to understand the fan base here, because right now I'm concerned. And I'm not sure it's Disney. I think it's Hasbro. And, you know, it's no secret that things have been shaken up over at Hasbro. And I just don't think that they have got it all sorted out uh, yet. And it's suffering. But they have a big opportunity. They're missing with Rebels. They better not miss with the Force Force Awakens. And they're even talking about these standalone movies are being casted right now. 
So, I mean, Star Wars is is up, is going to be big, huge, coming up for the next decade. And they better not drop the ball. Well, especially if the rumor is true that one of those standalones could be about a Mandalorian bounty hunter named Sabine. Right. I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, I think it's going to be probably a, a Boba Fett, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, in any case, I think that there is going to be a lot of Star Wars news coming out over the next couple of months. And to all our listeners, you can be guaranteed that we will be there to talk about every bit of it. Until next time, I want to thank you guys for discussing, as I said, my favorite episode of the series thus far. And I'm really eager to see where they go with it. All right, Jonathan. It was great talking to you guys this week, and I will talk to you guys next week. Good night, everybody. Hopefully, we'll be able to pull Jen back into this someday. Jen, we miss you. You're our only hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. I really enjoyed it. I, I don't know if I would say it was my favorite, but the opening, oh my god, the, the, the way it just kicked in with that whole Return of the Jedi feel for okay, everything. Mark, or, Mark, it's not working. You're uh, cutting in and out. Yeah. Dang. Uh, it's it's not so bad. I, I hear him. He's not cutting He's cutting out, out a little bit. Maybe if you spoke a little bit slower, that way it'd be easier to edit if there's parts that drop or something. Yeah, we could try that. Okay. I will attempt to slow it down. Shatner-esque? Yes. I, it I don't know. It was a great episode. So, no. <laughs> a call to action. If they're trying to hold on to him through the end of the semester, uh, the semester, wah, wah. Yeah, see what happens to me? <laughs> I got to say, one thing that struck me in that conversation, and my brain just went completely fucking. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Went completely blank for a second. I'm glad I wrote it down. And the squirrel's alive. Will you please stop talking?